Welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, the latest Hoover Institution podcast on policy, law, and the Constitution. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University's Law School. Richard, how are you? I'm fine. Well, last night was a big night in the news. We're recording this on April 10th, and last night, April 9th, uh, the FBI raided the office of Michael Cohen, the personal attorney of President Trump. President Trump has always had a few things to say about this, telling the press last night that they raided the office of one of my personal attorneys, a good man, and it's a disgraceful situation. It's a total witch hunt. He went on to say it's a disgrace, it's frankly a disgrace, and Many people have said you should fire him, namely you should fire Mueller. Uh, Richard, I'm curious, are you one of the people saying that President Trump should fire Richard Mueller? Well, I'm an extremely prudent fellow, so until I figure out exactly what happened, I'm not going to say anything. One of the things that we do know is that whoever did the raid had it approved by a higher official. We also know that to some extent it was done by the Manhattan DA, and to some extent it was done by somebody in the Mueller campaign. Uh, we don't have any particular evidence one way or another of what it was that prompted this situation. Correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, but I don't think that there was actually a warrant which was obtained in this particular case. Um, or any kind of judicial approval. I think it was done unilaterally inside the government offices. Uh, so my view about this is a motion to suppress all of these documents and to return them is probably going to be very much in order. Uh, normally, I would accuse uh, Mr. Trump of hyperbole. That seems to be his mode of being. But in this particular case, you could at least make the argument that his response is relatively restrained when he screams out that there is an attorney-client privilege that is totally dead and that this is a total witch hunt, double exclamation point, oh, triple explanation point, excuse me. Uh, so I actually believe that there's a heavy burden on the government to explain why they did this. I'll just mention a couple of things. Um, one is there was no effort to get particularity, which is normally required in order to receive a warrant under the Fourth Amendment. And there was no evidence, at least as far as I can tell, uh, that Cohen was making any threat to destroy the documents, which would subject them to heavy criminal penalties. Uh, so it seems to me that uh, at this particular point, the burden of explanation is upon the people who conducted this particular raid. So I'm willing to, as it were, conditionally condemn them. So what's your view? Well, I'm still trying to catch up with what exactly transpired last night. I was under, the impression, I was under the impression that there actually uh, were search warrants, although I could be mistaken on that. But whether or not there, are, there was a search warrant, as you indicated, any time you have law enforcement raiding the office of a lawyer, uh, in conjunction with an investigation involving the Lawrence lawyer's clients. That raises profound questions of attorney-client privilege. Uh, President Trump tweeted this morning that uh, attorney-client privilege is dead, he said. Um, uh, and I think he recognizes the gravity of the situation. Uh, but it is certainly an extraordinary, extraordinary event, uh, whether it, it, this is all triggered simply by allegations that Mr. Cohen violated ca campaign finance laws, uh, by, by, by paying off uh, the adult film actress Stormy Daniels or whether there's something else uh, in play, we don't know yet. But stepping back just for a moment from the specifics of the search, and we can return to that in a, in a minute, I would like to, to come back to the, the, the underlying question in all of this, which is the nature of the special counsel office. It's, it's not the independent counsel with statutory protection that Ken Starr and other, other uh, in, independent counsels in the 80s and 90s had. This is a creation of the executive branch itself. 
the creation of the Justice Department through a notice and comment rulemaking uh, back in 1999. But it was an effort to, in some ways, replicate uh, the independent counsel exclusively within the executive branch. Uh, it's independent in some ways, but not completely independent. Uh, it r- raises questions about the president's power to oversee an investigation by the special counsel, raises questions of, of maybe not the unitary executive per se, because this isn't Congress imposing limits on the president, but it still raises basic questions about the management of a prosecutor. And so I'm, I'm curious, setting aside Mueller specifically, what are your views on the, on the special counsel's office uh, just in theory? Well, I mean, there was this wonderful Morrison and Olson dissent by Scalia, which is one of his most powerful and prophetic opinions, in which he says this thing, i.e. the independent special prosecutor, um, comes as a wolf's in wolf's clothing. And, and I agree with that. I mean, that was a case where Miss Morrison had an unlimited budget, all sorts of political ambition. And she took Ted Olson and she basically, you know, hosed him up and down, eventually coming up with nothing on that of any particular consequence, which shows in effect that there are serious difficulties there. To put it in a slightly different way, uh, the original argument in favor of the independent prosecutor was that you had to guard against conflicts of interest because the Justice Department and an administration would never investigate one of its own. And so you get somebody outside of it. And what's wrong with that argument is not that the conflict of interest issue doesn't really matter, uh, but it's not the only thing that matters. And in fact, when you have somebody who's completely independent and completely unchecked by any other institution, if there is some excesses on the part of that particular official, uh, there's going to be a massive amount of political distortion that's going to start to take place. And that's what happened in that case. Well, here, I think in many ways, it's worse. I'm going to start with the obvious, which is that Donald Trump should have never appointed Jeff Sessions as attorney general in the first place. This has nothing to do with Sessions' character. It has to do with the fact that if somebody is a part of your political campaign and your political campaign has been marked by controversy, you have to assume that your political enemy is going to put your attorney general in the crosshairs if they can disable him. And it's relatively easy to do so. So a session steps out for reasons that are perfectly legitimate. The president still hates him for that. This is not conducive to a great uh, working relationship. Uh, Then after the Comey fiasco, it turns out you put Rod Rosenstein in and he makes what I regard as an unpardonable blunder, which is to put Mueller in the position of the quasi-special prosecutor whose political insulation is as great as any Anything we've we've already had. Well, he's sitting in there with this power. The president fires him. It's going to precipitate all sorts of political chaos. And he's a close confidant of Rosenstein and a close confidant of Comey and probably a pretty strong enemy of the president. Uh, you don't do that. Uh, if you want to get an independent investigation, you get somebody who has no baggage. Uh, if you're talking about witnesses and they're conflicted, you have to kind of do the best you can. But you have a free slate, you pick somebody else. And now you start to see all of this stuff and it gets me very, very leery because the investigations roll on. We have a bunch of minor prosecutions for lying to the FBI. Uh, if there's a national crisis, if Trump is in league with the Russians or whatever it is, you don't want to have to wait nine or ten months to find this out. So I regard this as a sorry state of affairs. I don't think that the president can fire um, Mueller without political repercussions. Um, query whether he could fire Rosenstein and put somebody in place. But given the Democratic adamance in the Senate, 
I just think that this has simply been the greatest return to Mr. Putin's investment of anything that we ever could have imagined. And do you agree with this or am I just being too pessimistic? Well, there's some parts of that that I agree with, but I, I, I do agree. Thank I disagree, but, but I disagree with a lot of it. I mean, I do agree that President Trump has exacerbated a lot of the problems, uh, in the way that he, he, he approached this issue from the very beginning. You said that President Trump made a mistake in appointing Senator Sessions to be attorney general, given that Sessions played such a, a key role in the presidential campaign that's now the focus of the investigation. It's, it's hard for me right here on the spot to, to dial back to November of 2016 and think about how much we knew then, how much the president might have known then, what was reasonably foreseeable in terms of Senator Sessions, Attorney General Sessions having to recuse himself. It's hard to say, but I do think from the very beginning, it was a profound mistake uh, by the president and by his lawyers to defend, to approach the issue of the special counsel investigation. And the, before that, just the general issue of, of, of ethics and legal compliance at the highest levels of government, uh, to, to treat that like any defense lawyer, any brass knuckles defense lawyer would approach a case. I think when we're talking about the highest levels of government, um, there are obligations on the president to see that the laws are faithfully executed, to see that, that his, his, his administration energetically pursues its policies, which I'll refer to, I'll return to in just a minute. But all that, I think, counsels in favor of the president and his advisors bending over backwards to try to dispel from the beginning any cloud of unethical behavior, uh, or any, any cloud of legal impropriety surrounding their investigation. I think it was those decisions in early 2017 that really laid the groundwork for what we're now dealing with and, and exacerbated this problem. And and in all that, I guess my key point that I want to say is I actually think that the special counsel, the office of special counsel, as it was constructed by the Clinton administration in that 1999 rulemaking, I think that office is actually very good and very important because because as, as Hamilton explained in Federalist 70, uh, the president's, the, pre- the presidency is an office that needs to be energetic, uh, not just for the sake of, of national defense and, and foreign, foreign policy, but also, uh, it, he said it was no less important to good government at home. And if energy in the executive is important, then anything that can sap the energy of the executive is a threat. And what I, I think of first and foremost, and I wrote about this for City Journal's magazine at the time in, in early 2017, was that ethical uh, allegations of unethical behavior would drain all of the energy out of this administration. And so my point is, while I, the reason why I like the special counsel is that ideally the existence of the special counsel's office is a mechanism for quickly rooting out problems within the executive branch, problems of conflict of interest or unethical behavior or crimes, and that when everybody complies with the investigation, it can help dispel that cloud around the presidency. Uh, But unfortunately, President Trump and his advisors have gone the exact opposite route and only assisted in maintaining this cloud of unethical behavior surrounding the administration. I disagree with some of that. I mean, the word you used was quickly, and this investigation has been going on now over nine months, and there's still no serious indictment. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are two scenarios that are constantly being played out. One is that Mueller is assembling piece by piece a painfully powerful case against the president, which once it makes will make his position politically untenable and perhaps force his resignation or an impeachment. 
And the other one is he doesn't have anything. And what he's trying to do is to simply play the game for all that it's worth because of a personal animus against the president, which is shared by all of his staff. I have no idea which of these two things is true. But my own view is the longer it goes, the heavier the burden is on our friend Mueller to come up with something. And at this particular point, if I had to guess, I would guess he's not going to come up with very much. And the second point, Adam, is I fully agree with you that the office arrangements here are reasonable compromises and, and sensible adjustments, better than the old system. But the difficulty is who you have running these things. And it turns out that you have a cronyism problem in that Mueller um, – uh, Rosenstein um, and Comey are all very close together. All of these things are involved. And so when you're putting a, an investigation together, the rules count for 30% of the game, but the people whom you put in these particular slots count for even more. Uh, this is one of the things that we know, which is that there's no set of structural limitations uh, that can make a government good if the people running it are bad. That's, of course, the charge against Trump. All the limitations on executive powers don't mean somebody if they have his kind of bizarre judgment. And so that that's where I think the difficulty is. Uh, my constant position is you want somebody who's a good at investigation, who has no baggage, no alliances, no friendship. They say, well, I don't know anything about the FBI. Well, that's what you can do. You run an investigation, you start to learn this. Uh, the second thing I would say about this is there was this very upsetting conversation, I think, between the president and Comey, uh, where the president asked Comey, do you think that I'm involved in this Russia thing? Everybody can see that the Russians are going to be meddling in our elections. They've done it for 60, 70 years. And the private answer is no. And then the public answer is nothing. Well, if I were Trump and somebody told me, I don't believe you've done a thing, but I'm not going to say it to the rest of the world, uh, that seems to me to be a very serious breach of ethics. Now, if Comey had come out and said, look, I don't think there's anything on the president yet, but I think I'm duty bound to run an independent investigation, um, I think that would have completely transformed the situation. But the Democrats know that they've got a bull who is easily provoked, and so they are masters at provoking him. Uh, the Republican establishment who detests Trump does the same thing. So I'm in this odd position of defending somebody whose presidency I in many ways heartily disapprove of, although I support him obviously on something. Uh, so uh, to me, this is a, a case in which the tragedy goes all the way around. I don't think everybody or anybody indeed has done it correctly. What is so difficult about it is I don't see any way to right the ship, um, which is what we need. And I think this last maneuver only makes the stakes higher uh, because they, again, make it look as, oh, my God, you're doing this for a $130,000 payment? Oh, okay, it's a serious issue. Trump denies that he knew anything about it. I think the first thing you want to do is to depose Mr. Cohen and said, did you do it on your own initiative? Uh, was a hint and a wink from the president or something, because otherwise it turns out that this is highly collateral matters, relatively unrelated, I think, uh, to what is going on in the larger political scene. I'm, st I'm so, I guess we do kind of have a, what's the word, reasonable disagreement on this point? That's right. We have a reasonable disagreement. Now, I, I would say um, I agree with you completely that the way that, that Comey conducted himself through the election year and then in the opening months of the new administration was a real disgrace. And everything I said a few minutes ago about the need for total ethical propriety and the appearance of ethical propriety as well, that goes just the same for anybody in the executive branch, including Comey when he was still in it. Um, I'm with respect to, with respect to Mueller and his team, I think there's serious questions raised by the fact that Mueller's entire team is, as far as we can tell, Democrats, uh, including some who, at least at the outset of the investigation, had an axe to grind against against President Trump. Of course, at the same time, it's hard to imagine what, Repu what Republicans 
would have signed up to be on the Mueller team, right? Any Republican lawyer um, who's sitting out this administration but has the hopes of serving in a future Republican administration would stay as far away from the Mueller investigation as humanly possible just to preserve his or her own um, his or her own ties to the political party going forward. And so I'm not surprised that only Democrats volunteered for this, but that makes it incumbent upon Mueller and the team itself to bend over backwards to show that they aren't actually biased. And I just don't think we've seen that transparency on the part of the Mueller team. You, you touched you, – oh, sorry, please. Right. Yes, I mean, transparency is, of course, a double virtue. You'd like to have it, but investigations are normally con- conducted in secret. And, and the one point I made with this fellow, Strauss and so forth, I mean, once it's very clear that he is biased, it's not only that you demote or get him off the team. What you have to do is to take everything that he has managed to assemble and do and sort of put it off to one side and not rely on it. And I think Mueller did the first, but he didn't do the second. Yeah. You, um, you, you touched on a really important point in passing a few minutes ago. You said that all the all the structural protections in the Constitution, that they don't do us a whole lot of good when the people occupying offices, not just the presidency, but the courts and Congress, uh, aren't uh, exercising their power responsibly and, and prudently and ethically. I think this is crucially important. It's something I hope to spend a lot of time writing on this year. Um, in the last few years, last few decades, success, especially among conservatives, in pointing people back to the importance of constitutional structure, I think in some ways has unfortunately made us forget that the framers didn't just put their faith in structure. Sure, they said that that um, that that our structure is one where ambition will counteract ambition, and uh, we don't assume that men will be angels. But the framers went on at length, especially in the Federalist, stressing the importance of Republican virtue, saying Republican government presupposes these virtues more than any other part of government. And ironically, a couple of years before the election, I actually wrote on this for the Weekly Standard um, with respect to Russia and Russian influence on the government. But I was writing it uh, in terms of Russian outreach to the Clinton Foundation and the Clintons um, and efforts to perhaps sway uh, the, the Clintons in a couple of years before the election. And so I wrote this, this article for the standard called Beware of Russians Bearing Gifts with a smiling photo of Vladimir Putin and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I pointed readers back to Federalist 22, the Federalist paper where, where Hamilton actually writes about the emoluments clause. You made a point, uh, the emoluments clause being the clause of the Constitution that prevents uh, United States officials from accepting uh, gifts uh, or influence from foreign countries. This is the, the constitutional provision that's now at the heart of these lawsuits against President Trump. And I don't know whether those lawsuits have any merit. I tend to think they don't. But Hamilton's point in Federalist 22 is, extra- is exceptionally important, and I, I wish more people would read this Federalist paper. He says that actually republics are more susceptible to foreign influence or other unethical influence than any other part of government. He said, for all the problems that hereditary monarchy has, at least the head of state is personally tied, his or her credibility is personally tied to to, to the performance of government. But in a republic, uh, Hamilton said, persons elevated from the mass of the community by the votes of their fellow citizens to stations of great preeminence and power may find compensations for betraying the people's trust. And so Hamilton stressed in Federalist 22 and, and Hamilton and Madison throughout the Federalist Papers stressed the need for us to guard against even the, the appearance 
of impropriety in the highest levels of government precisely because it's so corrosive to Republican government. And that, I think, is, is the great one of the great takeaways from this, that especially in the last presidential election, where a lot of people um, would, would look at, at, at the candidacy of, of President Trump and say, I agree with him so much on policy. I dislike I dislike him personally, but I'm not voting for a, a friend. I'm voting for an office holder. You know, I, that was a reasonable, a perfectly reasonable calculus during the election year. But I think we're now seeing in hindsight that actually there isn't a bright line between the personal character of an office holder and the performance of government under that office. And I think that's an important lesson. That's why I voted for a third party candidate whose name I forget. Um, because I think that the trust issues are exactly the same with Hillary Clinton as, as you've mentioned. Let me just start off a little bit with the emoluments clauses. It turns out that I just heard Josh Blackman speak about this yesterday and he's been the principal force defending, uh, uh, the president against these various suits in an odd capacity as an amicus. Uh, uh, but there are two emoluments clauses I discovered, one of which explicitly applies to the president and that's with respect to domestic countries. And the other, which only applies to officers of the United States and not to the president, where the definition of officer, if you parse the various provisions of the Constitution, uh, seems to refer to those people who receive appointed offices. And in line with what you said about the importance of getting the right people in the right places, uh, the amount of attention that is spent in the Constitution on the appointments clauses and confirmations, issues like that, indicate that the original focus of the Constitution organization was not judicial review, which came later and probably incorrectly as a matter of originalist interpretation, but was on trying to figure out how you get this elaborate system of checks and balances in place. The weakness of this is that the guy at the top, um, the administration, the constitutional founders, rightly realized that you, you didn't want to have a system of dual power, and so they invested the power of the president in one person, stress on the executive, not many, uh, so as to avoid gridlock at the top. Think of most corporations, co-CEO are almost always transitional figures. One of them is Romulus and the other is Remus, and we know who happens to survive. Only the Romulus guy will survive. And so that means you've got this. And then there's this famous line from Federalist 10 about enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. And that's the argument for having strong institutional checks. But those checks are going to work much better against lower-level officials who are subject to all sorts of internal supervision. Uh, but when it comes to the presidency, I mean, there's only one of him. We have to have that for expedition and energy, as you say. But that leads to the greatest dangers on the other side. It also, of course, conversely, has exactly the opposite point of view. If you've got a president who has not done anything wrong and people who are making real charges against him that are inflated or exaggerated, that itself becomes enormous because what it does is it diverts his energy from running the affairs of the republic in order to deal with what's going on domestically. So in this particular case, I don't think anybody doubts that a Mr. Putin will stop at nothing to subvert institutions in the West, including murder if that happens to suit him on a particular occasion. And we spend all our time talking about Trump and not enough time about trying to figure out how we deal with our, our enemies on the outside. So in looking at this, I agree with 100% the character stuff really matters. And what is so tragic about the American political situation, and I think this is becoming true by the year, is this grinding ordeal of public primaries of one sort or another means that people of normal sensibilities just simply opt out of the process. And so that leaves us at the end of the day with two superannuated candidates, Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump, neither of whom 
on a character basis, really uh, win the confidence of the people. And remember, it was by the grace of Comey that she was not prosecuted back in March of 2015 when there was lots of strong evidence about the way in which she operated her email service, which indicated that she was in clear violation of federal law. Uh, so there are so many errors going in so many directions that after a while you can't figure out where the tennis ball is at any given time. As I like to say, in tennis you usually watch from the end so you can see where the ball is going. I feel like I'm sitting right there at the net, the ball is whizzing by, I can't follow it one way or another. And that is what I think is the looming source of what seems to be now an American tragedy. Well, I'm glad that you brought everything back to Romulus because for me, it only confirms that for you, everything really can be traced back to Rome and Roman law. And that was sort of a, that was, that was a refreshing reminder. Where where do you think the word Republican comes from, Adam? Uh, It comes from Republic. (laughs) <laughs> no, it comes from race publicae, which is Roman. And race means either a concrete thing or in this case affairs. And publicae means the affairs of the public. Mm-hmm. And a Republican government is designed by those two words to limit itself to those kinds of issues. So the public-private decision is there. It's also reinforced in the Roman law of private property, which starts very, very early on uh, to make exactly these distinctions and, and so on. And it's also used in opposition to the word Democratic, as you remember in early political theory, where democracy was regarded as something akin to mob rule, and a republic with all this elaborate system of division of powers and checks and balances and so forth was thought to be a way to keep the thing under control. And what's happening now is the checks are not balancing out, as it were, and we are in a very bad political situation. I think, in effect, that the a war- the the behavior that was done with or without a warrant is really dangerous. And I'll just say, I'm not sure either. But if there was a warrant, what judge would issue it is another serious question, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, you, you referred a minute ago to our friend Josh Blackman, uh, who's truly who's yes. truly Great truly indefatigable. And you're right. He and uh, he's been he's been leading Seth Tillman. That's right, Seth Tillman. Uh, they've been leading the charge on on. on poking holes in this emoluments lawsuit. Now, I, I have to say, we have a podcast, you and I, two lawyers. And so it's, I hesitate to say, you know, there's a danger in over-lawyering everything. But I do think that the emoluments clause lawsuit and the rhetoric surrounding it on, on, by President Trump's critics really does illustrate the dangers of allowing every political dispute to just fall into the limits of a purely legal dispute, the efforts by people on both sides of these issues to try to cast everything in the absolutes of legal argument is is another problem. You know, this is in a way it's it reflects what Marianne Glendon warned about in the 1980s in terms of rights talk, trying to reduce every yes. political dispute to one about rights. Well, now everything is reduced to law talk, uh, if you don't mind me using that term. Um, uh, well, it's another show with John. You keep. Using I know, it. but uh, I'm, I'm glad that there's one podcast dedicated to law talk. The problem is when our entire public discourse is reduced to law talk and people trying to force fit political disputes into something like the emoluments clause, the foreign emoluments clause, which, as you indicated, is a very precise and precisely worded uh, legal provision, which may not stretch nearly as far as President Trump's critics hope. The reason why I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this at such length is I think we're, we're running into another series of legal arguments that are, are 
that probably shouldn't be just legal arguments. Right now, you're seeing books written about impeachment, articles written about impeachment. You're seeing articles written about the president's pardon power and how far it goes. Or we're seeing articles and arguments about uh, Mueller's investigation. And I think far too much of these debates, these dialogues, try to argue everything in strictly legal terms, as if the pardon power is something of, of strictly legal absolutes and not something where prudence can govern. Same with impeachment, same with the investigations. Now, I know you don't make that mistake, and you stressed at the outset that these things need to be governed not just by law but by prudence. But I think there is something there is something corrosive about our policy debates all, the debates all being reduced into strictly legal debates. I think it, it's simultaneously too large and too narrow. Look, I agree with that emphatically. And let me sort of put it in a slightly different version. Um, when you start off, wait a second. Um, is when you start off with these kinds of debates, there are very clear legal grounds. And what you ought to do is to make sure that you don't try and twist the constitutional language to make that which is clear contentious or that which is contentious clear. So the pardon power does vest absolutely in the president, uh, but it is generally regarded in some sense socially as an abuse of authority to use it unilaterally in the way, and for example, we saw it was done with, with Mark Rich on Clinton gave him the pardon on the last day. Uh, and so we set up a pardons office essentially to try to organize and to uh, sift through these things so that the president is not going to be left naked out there. And I think that's a classic illustration of what you said, is that it turns out that if you're given absolute power uh, to dispense justice in some way or another, uh, the prudent thing to do is not to accept it, but to rely on the advice of other individuals, perhaps in writing, perhaps not. You know, there are hundreds of these applications that come through. A president cannot obviously consider them themselves. And that's yet another issue about our constitution. It was written for a republic of 3 million people, and we've now got over 100 times that much and probably 10,000 times the amount of business, and no one person at the top can possibly handle the load. On impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanor don't cover sort of generic lack of competence that the president has or erratic behavior or tweeting and so forth. So again, I wish that that particular discussion uh, would come to an end. I mean, I have called on time to time for the president to resign, not because I think he's done anything illegal. But because I predicted, and I think rightly, that the kind of episodes that we had starting in the first and second weeks of his presidency would continue unabated throughout his term, and that is just too much of a heavy toll for everything that's, that's going on in this country. Uh, but what happens, you can't urge him to do that now uh, when his critics are so adamant, because then it looks as though some bad people are driving him from office. Uh, so as I say, I do think that we are watching a kind of clear, clear disintegration of our political culture. And I'm going to go back to the corporate analogy for one second, because I think it helps this. Uh, for the last 40 years or so forth, I've taken a very strong position in defense of the contract at will, which means that you can fire or hire for good reason, bad reason, no reason at all. Uh, but the only reason a contract at will works is because there are informal norms within each organization, which essentially have a non-judicial review feature in which everything has to be done for some kind of a cause. And if you can maintain that dual culture, you'll run a successful company. If you can't, you won't. And so what does it mean? It means that a chief executive actually has to worry about morale and culture before they worry about any particular mission. Well, the same thing applies on the public side. And unfortunately, the president that we have is not somebody who knows how to build these things up. All he knows how to do is to destroy it in others. They respond in kind. Uh, so what happens is any effort to have rapprochement, a compromise, which are essential political virtues, 
doesn't seem to take place. And I think we're in for a very rough patch. And the internal discord, as you stressed rightly, is going to lead to inferior performance in both the domestic and especially on the foreign front. Well, Richard, there's no law requiring us to end at 30 minutes, but I think it's probably a good norm to follow. And so why don't you take, why don't you have uh, have the last word, and and we'll thank our listeners for tuning in again. This is Reasonable Disagreements with Adam White and Richard Epstein. Uh, don't forget the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Area 5045 with Bill Whalen, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and, uh, of course, The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Richard, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Adam, because I think what happens is we are trying to do something which we believe ought to be done in the public sphere, which is to have more reasoned and reasonable disagreements. And so I look forward to our next situation. And unfortunately, given the state of political play, I think there'll be something that both of us will be able to collectively lament, even though we may have somewhat different takes about what should be done in this very unsaid, unhappy situation. We're like parents who agree on fundamentals, but we don't know what to do with our unruly children. That's it. <laughs> I was speechless. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.